Well, good morning, River Tree. I am so glad to be with you guys this morning. Whether you're here at the main campus, you're watching down at South, or you're watching online, it's just a joy to be with you guys today. And, and in case you're new to River Tree, I'm not Ross, okay? Ross is in Poland on mission with Justin and 28 other people. And they are on a week-long mission trip this week, so they're there, they're on the ground, they're few hours ahead of us to so be praying for them. But my name is Stephen Dunn. I am the student pastor here, and I'm excited to be with you as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark the next two weeks. And in case you weren't here last week, um, what we Ross talked about was really impactful for me. I'll, I'll just offer that to you. The disciples uh, were sent by Jesus onto the sea. They're in a boat, and they face this great storm. It's kind of the second picture of a storm in the gospel of Mark that we get. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 48, this is what Mark records. And as Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And once again, um, Jesus is walking on the sea towards the, towards the disciples. They're scared. They think he's a ghost. Um, but remember, the miracle probably wasn't the fact that Jesus walked on the sea. It was a miracle, but it wasn't the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle was found in verse 51. And this is the verse that just pierced my heart all week, and I, I thought about it. And it says this. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Man, I loved how Ross pointed this out last week, that wherever our destination is, is where Jesus is. That we have arrived at our destination, no matter what storms come our way, no matter what trials we have, no matter what troubles we find, we are at our definition, destination if Jesus is in the boat with us. Whether we feel like we're making progress or not, if we are with Jesus and Jesus is with us, we realize this, friends, that we are exactly where we are supposed to be. And something that's kind of happened in my life, some of you are aware of this, some of you aren't aware of this. Normally I have glasses on, but back in April, I was actually diagnosed with a cornea disease. Um, it's called keratoconus. Apparently one in 250,000 people have it, and three people in Huntsville who go to this church have it. So go figure, right? Like we're all the people in Huntsville, North Alabama, who have it go to River Tree. But um, it's the coning of your cornea. It's where your vision gets worse out of my right eye. Uh, I could see 20 over 250 corrected. Out of my left eye, it was about 20 over 100. So I've been through some surgeries. Um, I'm on the right road by God's grace. I've had the right eye doctors and right appointments. And it's amazing just what God's kind of given me. But there's been disappointment and discouragement along the way, right? But I'm hopeful because Jesus is in the boat with me because he hasn't left me alone in it. I'm holding on to Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, that says this. It's not on your screen, but if you have your Bibles, you can check it out. It says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character, friends, produces hope. And that hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given us. And it's interesting, right? Because like having this cornea disease has kind of helped me out in some ways too, believe it or not. Uh, one of the ways it's helped me out is sometimes like I would leave maybe some crumbs on the ground after I ate where I wasn't supposed to eat in the house, right? Or I would take my coffee beans in the morning, put them in the grinder, a couple of them would hit the floor. And my wife was always like, through 15 years of marriage, how does he not see this, Right? because I really didn't see it, okay? Oh, so that was the reality. So there's been some 
compassion on her part recently, which has been awesome. It also has kind of brought to light maybe why I never made the NBA, okay? It's not, it's not the fact that I can't dunk. It's not the fact that I'm five foot nine. It's the fact that I couldn't see what I was shooting at. And that, was, that just explained a lot to me until my compassionate and gracious wife emailed me an article last week that said 13 people you may know who have keratoconus. The number one person on the list was this guy, some of you have heard of him by the name of Steph Curry. Not, and just so you know, if you don't know basketball, he's like the greatest shooter in NBA history, okay? So there went that dream, right down, the, right down the gutter. But this is the reality. There are moments in life, and we all have these moments where something begins to change, where, where we thought one thing was true, but we find out something else is completely true. With me, I just thought everybody had eyesight like this until... One of my eye doctors put a specialty contact in my eye, and I looked at my arm, and I said, I am a lot hairier than I thought I was, okay? <laughs> and uh, it was truly incredible. And when we get to the text today, here's what we realize. We realize that there's this group of religious people coming from Jerusalem, and, and they're at the heart of all the religious activity, and they believe one thing about what it means to be right with God and Jesus is about to kind of flip their paradigm. He's about to shift their vision. He's about to change the way not only do they think about it, but also the disciples think about it. So if you've got your Bibles, Mark chapter 7, verse 1 is where we'll be today. Here's what it says. We're going to read this whole passage. Now the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. They saw his disciples ate with their hands that were defiled. And just so you know, some of your translations might say it, but it just means unclean there. And we'll, we'll unpack that in a minute. That is unwashed. For the Pharisees and the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Isaiah prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines and the commandments of men. Verse 8, it's kind of the hinge of the text, says this, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said, you are fine with rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, but you say, whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is a gift or given to God, then you are no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. Verse 14 says this, and he called the people to him again, and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside of a person that goes into him that can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. And they said to him, then are you without understanding? Or he said to them, are you without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from the outside can't defile him? 
since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it's expelled. Thus he declares all food clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So right away, Mark introduces us to these two groups of people. It's the Pharisees and scribes, and they come from the heart of the religious activity in the nation, Jerusalem. And they're coming in order once again to trick or trap Jesus. And that's interesting, right? Because as they come, they are literally standing back waiting for the disciples or for Jesus to mess up. And you have to start to wonder what's going inside of a person, right? What's going on inside of a person that would make them to, to come to an area and just wait for somebody to mess up? How insecure is that person, right? How worried is that person? How fearful is that person? And when they get to where Jesus is, they realize, hey, we've got him. His disciples, they don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, now hear me on this. They knew nothing about hygiene like we do today, okay? They weren't, this is not a hygiene issue here, okay? This is something more. They are concerned about what's happening that made them clean before God, the word defiled actually meant unclean, which meant ritually unacceptable. And this was huge in the Pharisees' minds. In fact, Mark points this out in verse 3 because most likely he's writing to this group of, of people like us who don't totally understand Jewish tradition, okay? So you see in your Bibles, it's probably bracketed to some degree because he's kind of offering a commentary on why they're so concerned about this. And verse 3 says this again, for the Pharisees and the Jews don't eat unless they wash properly, holding on to the tradition of the elders. When they come out of the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash their hand. And they have many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and couches. They were washing all the time. It's what they had to do. It was never ending because they couldn't risk what it might say about them if somebody thought they were defiled, if somebody thought they were unclean. They didn't want to take that risk, so all the time they're washing. Before meals, they would pour a little water over their hands, and they would wash their hands thoroughly, and they would let the water run out of their hands. Next, they would lower their hands, and they would rinse them, allowing the water literally to run off their fingertips. And they were returning to, from a place that they thought they could be defiled. Well, one of the translations says that they would literally bathe when they got back from that place. Tim Keller, in his book, Jesus is King, summarized this this way. According to the cleanliness laws, if you touched a dead animal or human being, if you had an infectious skin disease like boils or rashes or sores, if you came in contact with mildew on your clothes or articles in your home if, or your house itself, if you had any kind of bodily discharge, if you had ate any meat from an animal designated as unclean, you were considered ritually unpure, defiled, stained, unclean. This meant you couldn't enter the temple and therefore you couldn't worship God. I mean, get the weightiness of what they really believed about this. One rabbi once uh, didn't wash his hands, and people called him, and they excommunicated him from his place of worship. Another rabbi was arrested at this time period by the Romans, and as he's in jail, he sets aside 
his water for ritual cleaning, and he refuses to drink it because he's rationed it out to make sure he's clean before God, eventually he dies from that because he refuses to give himself the nourishment his body needs. And it seems extreme, right? Like, it seems like, man, that's a lot. Like, if we were his friend, we would say, buddy, just drink the water. But you have to understand, this is coming from a good place in their minds. This is coming from a place where they do not want to be wrong with God or wrong with other people. And even though it seems extreme, they had this sense that there was something wrong with life. They carried around this guilt and this shame that sin so easily produces, and this was their way of dealing with it. It's all they knew to do. There's a way they could be sure they were right with God. There's a way they could be sure that they were okay. So that's why they held on to the tradition so tightly. It's all they knew to do. It was inescapable. And it's interesting because, like, I know in some ways we've abandoned the ancient way of thinking or the ancient traditions where we're not just constantly washing ourselves on the outside to make ourselves clean before God. But the reality is this. I believe most of us in this room, maybe it's something we share in common, believe this about ourselves. If somebody was to truly examine us, they were truly to look within our hearts. They were truly to know us. They would find us unacceptable and unlovable, and not worthy of that. We have this inner sense of something being wrong also. Secretly, we feel that we aren't acceptable, that we have to prove ourselves, and prove to ourselves and to other people that we're worthy, that we're lovable, and that we're valuable. And that is exhausting. That's where they were. Man, and they were exhausted for it. So what do we do? We go, what kind of measures do we go to? And I think it's interesting because I want to pose the question that I think Jesus is posing in this text. What's that very thing that you are using to prove to yourself that you are okay, that you are holding tight to right now? That you are using in your own life that, that makes you feel worthy before God, worthy for yourself, and worthy before others? What are you holding tight to? And the question that Jesus poses is this. What if it's not what's on the outside of us that is actually the issue? What if it's what's going on inside of us? What if it's our heart? What if it's sin? Look at what said next in verse 5. So the Pharisees and scribes begin to ask Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Isaiah prophesied about you, didn't he? As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching the doctrines and commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold fast to the tradition of men. The Pharisees are so troubled. They're disturbed. They, they think they've tricked Jesus that his disciples don't wash their hands. Yet Jesus basically calls them out. He says, you guys are just acting. I mean, think about how hypocritical you are. Like, you're worshiping me with your lips, but your hearts are nowhere close to me. And it's something interesting, because when Jesus points back to Isaiah, Isaiah is this, this letter in the Bible that's written hundreds of years before Jesus. He's not just saying that, that Isaiah saw this happening one day. Isaiah literally saw it in his own nation. 
in his own community. And what Jesus is teaching us is this. He's teaching us that people do this all the time. For centuries, people have worshiped God with their lips, but their hearts have been far from him. And then he goes to the heart of the issue in verse 8. He says, you leave the commandments of God and you hold fast to the traditions of men. Friends, they're holding tightly to what they thought made them right with God. But they're missing the point as Jesus begins to unpack in verses 9 through 13. And he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish the tradition of men. And he begins to point out this idea of this simple commandment, right? To honor your mother and father. It went all the way back to Moses. It went back to what some of you memorized as the Ten Commandments when you were in elementary school. And what Jesus is saying is this. Friends, like you are picking and choosing what commandments to follow. You you are, instead of kind of worshiping God because you're created in his image, you are trying to make God fold into your own image and your own expectations and your own mindset. And really, instead of worshiping God, what you end up doing is you worship a version of yourself that you're comfortable with and that you like. He says, guys, do you not see how hypocritical that is? And sometimes we do that, right? Like we find parts of scripture and we find parts of the Bible and we say, well, I like what it says here and I like what it says here and I find this kind of easy to do. So I'll just do those things. But this stuff over here, like I want nothing to do with. And Jesus says, when we do that, we're acting like hypocrites. There's some duplicity that's going on within our life and within our heart. And I appreciate what happens next because really what happens is in verses 14 through 15, Jesus says it all hinges on how you define the essence of a person. And then the disciples go back into the house with Jesus. And verse 17 says that they asked him, like, what does this even mean? I love it. They said it was not a parable, but I love their understanding. They're like, well, this is really hard to understand, so it must be a parable, right? So they go to Jesus and they're like, what's this parable mean, man? And it gives me encouragement because have you ever been there? Have you ever heard something? You're like, I don't know what to do with this. Because they ultimately need his help to understand this. And he begins to explain to them. He begins to try to soften their hearts. They're they're asking the most basic question that I think maybe we all have. What's wrong with the world? Why is there so much strife? Why do relationships, even in families and friendships for a long time, start to fall apart? Why is there so much arguing and debate and discourse in the world? Why can't people get along? And Jesus begins to say, guys, it's not the outside. In fact, what he says is we're the problem. It's what's on the inside. Verse 18. And he said to them, then are you without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him? Since it enters not the heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Jesus gives us basic human anatomy there, right? Like... He thus declares all food clean. And he said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For within the heart of a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covenant, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus is simply saying this, we're what's wrong. It's what comes from the inside. Friends, it's the self-centeredness of the human heart. It's sin. And no amount of cleaning, no amount of religion, 
no amount of socially correct views can truly deal with sin. We need something more. So I'll illustrate it to you this way, okay? Um, I would say for the past couple of months, not past couple of months, maybe even past couple of weeks, we'll, we won't categorize it too much. Maybe it's due to my eye surgery, but I've had some trouble sleeping at night. We don't love our mattress. Um, it's not awesome. Uh, and, and so I was talking to my wife and she's like, well, do some research. And so like I would sit there and if you've ever researched mattresses, like it's a never ending rabbit hole, right? Like it just, like there's no bottom. Like you could go forever on it and there's YouTube videos and there's all this discussion and all these ideas on what makes a good mattress. And even when I had my eye surgery and I couldn't see for a couple days after, I listened to podcasts on mattresses. So <laughs> like I dove way too deep in it. I'll tell you that. But um, so she kind of gave me the green light. She's like, you can go look, whatever you want to do. I was like, great. So I had a day off. I was watching my daughters, hanging out with them. They're 10 and 7. I was like, guess what we're going to do today? And they're like, we're going to go to shakalaka or rock climbing or, or bowling. I was like, no, mattress shopping. And like, it was bad. They were, they were just like, that's not nice, Dad. But sure enough, we drove to this one mattress store. Um, I was really interested in the kind of mattress they sold. I had read a lot. I didn't think I would buy one, but I just wanted to see what the big fuss was about. And we get there, the sales guy who was awesome comes out of the store. And he's like, are you here to buy a mattress? I was like, maybe. That's what I thought you came into these stores for, right? But like, I don't know, maybe something else. So um, so we begin to talk. He makes me lay on this mattress, which is always a weird feeling. And then somehow he shows me a scan of my back. Not sure how that happened. And he shows me the pressure points of my back and how much pain I had. And he was showing me stuff I didn't even know what was going on. I was like, I did not know I had this pain until you told me. But he's telling me that's why you're not sleeping good at night. And it kind of keeps going on, right? And then he shows me this awesome video. And then he starts to hit these buttons. He's like, how do you feel now? And I'm like, oh, I know I'm a nice guy. I just, I told him the truth. I was like, the same? Like, I don't know. What am I supposed to say? He's like, we got you on the wrong mattress. Let's move. So we moved to another mattress in the store. And he says, see that over there? I was like, you mean the sleeping bag? He's like, yes. He's like, get in that. I'm like, okay, I'm just along for the ride. Like, I, sometimes I have this commitment, I'll do whatever when someone asks me. So I get into the sleeping bag, he hits a button, and he's like, now you have air condition on you. It's a sleeping bag that air conditions you the whole night, apparently. It was like, okay, cool. And I'm on a mattress, by the way, too. Um, and then he hits a button, and he puts me in what he called zero G. So I'm in zero G. He's like, it feels like you're in space, right? I, I didn't, never mind. I'd never been to space. I didn't break it to him. But anyway, so I'm in... <laughs> the zero G sleeping bag. And he's like, you're almost there. He's like, I'm about to give you the thing that will change your sleep forever. I, I want that. Like, that's not a bad thing. So he hands me this thing. And I, I got a picture for you so you can see how ridiculous this is. But he hands me that little baby looking thing. And he calls it a robot baby. And, and there I am in the sleeping bag holding it in zero G and my daughters are just shaking their head like what have you got us into and as I'm holding this baby it's matching my heartbeat he tells me and I didn't even know that was a thing he goes isn't this perfect isn't this the way you want to sleep and I'm thinking no like I don't want to hold my kids but we get to the end of it right and as we're at the end of it he's like well let's check out like you will finally start sleeping good and I just offered to him I was like how about I just don't drink coffee after 4 p.m. okay that sounds good and that is, that's ridiculous. Like, and it's true and silly, but here's the reality. 
That's what the Pharisees were doing with the cleaning stuff. They were cleaning and they were cleaning and they were cleaning, adding layer on layer on layer to tradition. And it was ridiculous because they couldn't fix what was happening inside of them. I think they were trying to solve their biggest problem with external measures and it wasn't working. They needed something different. And it's something that we have in common with them. For the most part, I would just offer you this. Every one of us is trying to deal with that inner sense of something being wrong with external measures. We're trying to deal with that uncleanliness, that guilt and shame with something from the outside. And Jesus just says, that's impossible. For some of us, and I've been here, it's religion. It's going to church enough, reading my Bible enough, praying enough, not hanging out with bad people, making sure my Netflix queue is somewhat acceptable, right? Like, I think, I think if all those things line up sometimes, I believe this lie, that then God will look at me, and he'll see how worthy I am, and then he'll fix my heart. It will not work. And it is exhausting. Because you know what? The things that you think are bringing you peace and security and making you valuable and worthy, they just lead to more anxiety. And they just lead to more stress and guilt and shame because that's not what those things can do. They can't save your heart. In fact, that kind of life makes a lousy God, right? Some of you is socially correct views. You think as long as I line up on the right side of this issue, which is important to be on the right side, but we think as long as I line up correctly about this, then my heart and what's wrong with the world will be fixed and it won't work. For some of us, it's just, it's just status, right? It's the right job. It's the right career. It's the right house. It's, it, it's good friends and good neighbors. And, and as long as we aren't as bad as some people, then we're okay. And we're holding tightly to those things. And it leaves us empty. For some, it's that social media picture, right? Maybe it's the college students, teenagers in the room. But as long as it looks right, as long as we get the right snap or Instagram post, and we can start to make people believe a version of ourselves that we know is not true, that we know there's something deeper, that there's a filter on that, right? Then life is okay, but it just is endless. Jesus said none of those things can fix us. It's what the Pharisees and religious leaders were doing. And no one is immune to this kind of outside-in cleaning. It's the thing that makes us okay, right? Whatever that thing is for you, whatever that thing you're holding on to so tightly that you're like, this is what I think will give me peace. This is what will give me security. This is what I've kind of based my life around. And you hold so tightly to that that if it was ever to be stripped for you or you were to ever to lose it, your world would fall apart. I'm saying Jesus is saying, let go of it now. That was what the Pharisees were at. They couldn't fathom a world where you didn't clean endlessly. He's like, you're missing it. That's hmm. what's inside of us. Prophet Jeremiah puts it this way. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. And the only one who can deal with that guilt or that shame and that sin inside of us is Jesus. I was sharing with a buddy of mine that 
I had the privilege to teach today. And we were talking about this passage. And he pointed me to Zechariah 3. And even as we were talking on the phone, he said he was getting chills as we were talking. And I, I wasn't that familiar with Zechariah 3. I probably had read it before, but not really dove in. But Zechariah is this prophet, and he gets this vision. And it's found in Zechariah chapter 3. It says this. Then the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. So if you remember our Exodus series, or even if you don't, um, there were these people called the high priest in Israel. They represented the people before God. And they would go to the temple, and the temple had three parts. It had the outer court, the inner court, and the holy of holies. And the holy of holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat. And really it represented just the presence of God. Is the place that the high priest would go to stand before God. To kind of paraphrase what happens in Leviticus, Leviticus 16, God says, if you come near the mercy seat, put a lot of incense and smoke up in the air because I'll appear in a cloud of the mercy seat and I don't want to die. Only one person during the year was allowed to go to the Holy of Holies and that was on the Day of Atonement. It was this high priest. A week beforehand, the high priest would begin to prepare himself to go into the Holy of Holies to be in the presence of God. He would bathe. He would fast. When he would eat, people would bring him food that was completely clean so that he wouldn't defile himself. They would do this, and he's completely alone during this time. And the reason why is so that he wouldn't touch anyone that was unacceptable or unclean. He washed his body and prepared his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, hmm, he would pray and he would stay up all night, making sure his heart was pure before God because he would want to purify his soul. Then he would bathe and he would put on these unstained clothes and he would go into the Holy of Holies, friends, and he would offer this sacrifice before God for himself, for his sins. He would walk out. He would do it again. As he did it again, he would offer a sacrifice for the priest, the people who were in charge of the temple. And then he would walk out and he would do it again for, for the sins of the nation. And people were aware on this day that he was doing this. They were cheering him on. Why? Because he was the representative, right? He was the one going before God on their behalf, making the sacrifice for their sins, allowing them to once again have fellowship with God. And it was never enough. So understanding that, you understand how shocking the next couple of verses in Zechariah are. Zechariah 3, 3 says this. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And you have to think Zechariah wondered how. <laughs> like, did he not get the memo? Like, this is not what you do, Right? Like, how is he clothed with filthy garments? Why is he clothed with filthy garments? What's happening here? But here's what I would offer you this morning, that ultimately God was giving Zechariah a prophetic vision of how God sees us when we stand before him, even in all our best attempts and all our efforts. No matter what we hold on to, no matter how pure we are or how good we are, or how much we try to cleanse ourselves, here's the reality. God sees our hearts and he knows what's really going on inside of them. He sees those parts that you don't want anyone to know about. Those parts that you would say, man, if someone could see that, I would be totally ashamed. But the good news is this. He doesn't leave us there. He enters into them. 
And he begins to cleanse them. To summarize what happens in the rest of the chapter, this was Zechariah 3, 4, and then verses 8 and 9 says, See, I've taken away your sin. I've put on rich garments on you. Listen, I'm going to bring my servant. He's talking about Jesus here, the branch, and I will remove the sin of the land in a single day. Friends, that's incredible. That what the high priest would do year after year after year, hoping that the sins would be removed. There was coming a day when somebody would die for the sins of the people and it would happen in a day. And Jesus, that pure and spotless lamb, would go to the cross and he would deal for, with our sin once and for all. When he said, it is finished, it was finished. He was saying, you can stop working, stop cleaning, stop doing all these external measures to deal with your heart because I'm about to do it. It's a fact what Paul would look forward to in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when Paul would write these words, that God made him who had no sin be sin for us so that we might become what? The righteousness of God. Hebrews chapter 13 says that Jesus died outside of the gate where the unclean bodies were, where the garbage was placed. He entered our defilement and he was killed for us. He took it upon himself. And I love the gospel of Mark continues to give us these pictures of Jesus going to these people that nobody else would go to going to these people that would make him unclean and say, no one can stain me. No one can change me. No one can defeat me. It cost Jesus everything and even his life so that ultimately he could deal with our heart problem. And this morning, I would wonder this. What's the thing that you're holding on to that makes you Okay that makes you feel right, that makes you feel clean. Religion, status, politics, socially correct views. And what's the thing you're holding on to? But instead of making you feel clean, if you're honest, it just leads to more doing and this endless cycle. Would you let go of that today? And would you allow Jesus to reshape your heart? Would you allow Jesus to do what only he can do? For the Pharisees, they thought this, defilement would ruin them. Jesus made it easy on them. No, your sins already ruined you. Just so you know, guys, the cross has outed every single one of us. Every single one of us need Jesus. And if you're in Christ, realize this. You've been given a new identity. That old heart that all that evil came out of, that's not there anymore. You've been given a new heart. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 says this, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put my spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. I um, have a friend, Katie. You guys know her. A lot of you do. Katie Taylor. And she taught our high school girls just a couple months back and she was teaching on identity and she gave every one of them the sheet I'm about to read you and if you've got your YouVersion app um, it's in there so you can check that out later you can follow along but it talks about who we are in Christ and I, I was going to end the talk a different way this morning but as I was just praying and seeking the Lord this morning I thought these would be things that would be worthy to confess 
These are things we need to be reminded of. So let me just read you some of these. They're, they're birthed in Scripture. So if you are in Christ this morning, make no mistake, if you're not in Christ, this is not true of you. But it can be. Like God may be doing this in your life, but if you are in Christ, here's what the Bible says, who you are. You're made in the very image of the living God. He sent his son to die for you on the cross. You're beloved, cherished child. You're saved, rescued, delivered, whole. You're chosen. You're accepted. You're royal. God loves, loves us even as he loves Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus, therefore you are no longer condemned. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. You are seated in the heavenly realms. You are sought after friends and you are highly favored. You are the light of the world. You are called to be a witness to the ends of the earth. You have the mind of Christ. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and your body is a temple of the living God. The one who is greater is in you than the one who's greater who's in the world. Zephaniah 3, I love this. The Lord rejoices and he sings over you. He delights in you. Mm, for some of you, that will set you free today to believe that. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. There's no weapon formed against you that can prosper. You're the apple of your father's eye. You are useful and you are part of the body of Christ, created for good works that he prepared before the foundation of the earth. You are fully known and guess what? You are fully loved. You're dead to the power of sin. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are more than a conqueror. You are a new creation. You are set free, and you are his masterpiece. Man, I pray with all that is within me today that that would go deep into your heart. We are so good at confessing everything we think is wrong with us, but what the Bible says is that when Jesus has given you a new heart, it's time to confess the things that are in you now. And some of you, you've gotten away from that. Man, and you're holding back to those traditions of men. And they are leading to so much bondage. But Jesus says, whoever the Son says free is free indeed. Hmm, I long for that for you today. Let's pray. And maybe as we begin our prayer time, you would know that the prayer team is going to be up front this morning and they are ready to pray with you. And if you've never put your faith in Christ, if you've never turned from your sin and allowed Jesus to deal with that and never put your faith in Christ, they'd love to talk to you about that. But if you have, maybe you would think of one of those things that I said that was meaningful to you this morning, and you would just confess that. And, and maybe you're having a hard time believing that in your heart, so you would say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief today, that you would know you've been given a new heart, that you are free. So, Father, I love you, and I thank you so much. And, Lord, it's you. You're the only one who can wash away our sins. You're it. There's no amount of good deeds or good works that can deal with our sin. It's only by the blood of Jesus that can, our sins can be washed away. And, and, Jesus, you're good. Like, you are good no matter what we're going through. You're in the boat with us. So, Lord, help us see your love for us, that you don't leave us in this endless cycle of trying to deal with our sin, that when you said it's finished, it was finished. Help us rest in that this morning. I love you. I love these people. I pray that we feel free to worship you this morning.